0: My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the Associate Pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. John 16, you have your Bibles? Turn there, if you would, please. My guess is that one of the earliest creeds that we as the church have had is, is what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Now, a creed is something that the church put forth as this is what we believe. In fact, one of the earliest creeds is known as the Disciples' Creed, and it's just a, a one page long. It's like, I don't know, 10 points, something like that. But I think this this creed, even even you know comes before that one and this creed goes like this this is the apostle paul he says for what i received i passed on to you as of first importance that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day that really seems to me to probably be this the smallest shortest creed that the church has ever put forward and paul put it forward in that letter now central to that statement that paul makes is that jesus died for us And that they buried him in the ground and that he returned back to life. He was dead. He was literally dead. And yet he lives again forevermore. Uh, Leading Bible, New Testament Bible scholar N.T. Wright explains how persons back in that day in the ancient world would have understood the word anastasis, which is the word for resurrection. And I quote N.T. Wright. This is what he says. The basic tenet of human existence and experience is accepted as axiomatic throughout the ancient world. Once people have gone by the road of death, they do not return. Resurrection was a way of describing something everyone knew did not happen. The idea that death could be reversed, undone, could, as it were, work backwards. Not even in myths was this permitted. Wright goes on to point out that the resurrection of Jesus, even in a world that accepted many supernatural things, was something that was not easily believed by the culture of the day. And he writes, some Jews affirmed it as a long-term future hope. Virtually all Christians claimed that it happened to Jesus and would happen to them in the future. To all of them, whether the pagans or the Christians, resurrection meant a return to embodied life for those who affirmed it and those who denied it. So this morning, what I'd like us to do in the text that we have before us is talk about the resurrection of Jesus because his resurrection is actually foundational for us. It is a constant that brings about some important truth in our life. Now, for those of you that happen to be our guests this morning and maybe haven't been here along the way, we're studying John chapter. Actually, we're studying John, the gospel, and we're at chapter 16 this morning. But beginning back in in chapter 11, I think it was, you know, Jesus is with his disciples on a very special night. Uh, He has washed their feet together. You remember that? And he has had the Lord's Supper. He's transformed the Passover meal for them. Uh, Judas has left, and then after that, Jesus begins this series of really important teaching for his his 11 disciples that are remaining. And you remember he talked about uh, he was the vine, they were the branches. And then he spent a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit and the coming of this helper who would help them and who would be with them. And uh, and then and for the last few weeks in our study, we looked at John 11, where uh, John 15, excuse me, where he talks about how he's the vine, we're the branches. And then he said, you're my friends, talking to them. And then he said, you're going to have foes in this world. You're always going to have foes in this world. And that brings us to chapter 16, verse 16, Because we covered the first 15 verses when we talked about the Holy Spirit. So if you're with me, we're at chapter 16 in John 16. We're going to pick up the story or the night. Uh, One more thing, Jesus Jesus and the men have left the upper room. They started off in this room where they had supper together. And then at some point in the evening, they left the room and they're heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, I told you it's speculation, but I think Jesus is teaching them as they walk. But it could be that they've gotten to Gethsemane, and he's teaching them there. We don't really know, but we pick up the story, pick up the teaching in verse 16. Jesus says, a little while, and you will no longer see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. So Jesus had just finished telling them about the Holy Spirit. Remember that? I mean, that was several weeks ago. But he's just finished teaching them about the Holy Spirit and how that, uh, you know, people would kill them thinking that they're doing God a service, that sort of thing. And then he makes this statement, in a little while you're not going to see me and then you're going to see me. Um, can, can I say, can I go back and say something I've said numerous weeks, but I think it's important. And that is that in, in this conversation with the 11, I, I'm not sure that we can take everything and say it belongs to us too. I mean, I think some, I know some of the things. When we get to chapter 17. Some of the things belong just to to those 11 men. I mean, we can't, they're not, they're not, they're not applicable to us because he's gonna differentiate them from us, okay? So you remember back when, when Jesus said that the Spirit was going to come and teach them and lead them into all truth, you remember that? I made the statement in passing, and I wanna go back to it again. I made the statement in passing that I think that that, that may have been a promise just for them. And I commented on the fact that we've had 2,000 years of following Jesus and we're more divided as the church than, than really maybe ever before. You know, the creed that I just read you is one verse long, Jesus died and rose again. The Apostles' Creed, which is the oldest creed we have, is like 10 points. It's less than one page long. But now we have hundreds and hundreds of pages of doctrinal creed, and we divide by all kinds of nuances that we believe the Bible teaches this and teaches that. How is it that if the Holy Spirit's going to lead us into all truth, how is it that we've become more divided and more nuanced over the years? And, uh, and I just want to throw it out there again, I, I just something for you to mull over in the days to come. Maybe the promise is to these 11 that the Holy Spirit is going to lead them and guide them into absolute truth so that when they pen for us the word of God, we have the truth. We have God's Word. Now, understanding it rightly, the Bible tells us that that's a work. We're to rightly understand the Word of God. We're to work at that. We're to show ourselves a a workman who's approved rightly handling the Word of God. So us understanding the Word, I mean, we need to work at that. But maybe the promise was for those 11 men, I'm going to lead, the Holy Spirit's going to lead you so that everything you put in your book, which is what I believe and what we believe as a church, that everything that God put in his book is is true. But here Jesus says to them again, "I'm, I'm not going to be with you much longer. And the truth is in less than 24 hours, they're going to kill him. And he's going to be snatched from them. Probably almost in less than 24 hours, he's going to be buried. He's going to be in, in the ground, and they won't see him anymore. And then he says, on the heels of that, however, but then you'll see me again in a short time. And it's obvious that, uh, it's obvious that Jesus is talking about his resurrection. In a short while, they're going to kill me, and you're not going to see me. And then in a short while, you will see me again. Verse 17, then some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us a little while and you'll not see me again a little while you'll see me and because I'm going to the father they said what is this he is saying a little while we don't know what he's talking about and with that exchange we get a little we get a little insight into the night so however this night is unfold unfolding there is at least at some point where the disciples can have a private conversation and they are arguing amongst themselves or discussing amongst themselves. We don't get what he's saying about this. In, the, in a little time, I'm going to be with you. In a little time, I'm not going to be with you. And, and then I'm going to the Father. We, we just don't get it. And it's obvious, from the, it's obvious from the context that this is not something they're saying in front of Jesus. This is something they're saying apart from Jesus. And they're, they're having this little bit of discussion. And they're kind of irritated because they don't understand what Jesus is saying. Now, this thing about Jesus being gone for a little while, coming back in a little while and going to the Father, Jesus has talked a lot about it all night long. Go back to 1336. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where where are you going? Because he's just told them he's getting ready to leave. In chapter 14, verse 2, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. 14, 12, I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Verse 19, chapter 14, in a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father. You are in me and I am in you. Verse 28, you have heard me tell you I am going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Don't forget these are all statements within just a few hours of conversation. He has been saying the same thing over and over and over again and they don't really get it. They understand that he they, they think evidently that he's talking about dying because in 16:5 they say or he says, "But now I'm going away to him who sent me, and not one of you has asked me where are you going?" Yet because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So they're sad. But they don't know where he's going. And he says, not one of you's asked me. This is just prior to this discussion. So he's asked that. Now they're talking amongst themselves, and they're whispering, and they're saying, we don't get it. Why doesn't he tell us where he's going? All right? So that's that's what's happening in the the course of of this text. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, And so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? A little while and you will not see me again, not see me again in a little while you will see me? Truly I tell you, now he adds some more information, you will weep and mourn but the world will rejoice and you will become sorrowful but your sorrow will turn to joy. So Jesus evidently knows, either it's supernatural, the Holy Spirit tells them what they're discussing or it's not so supernatural, and they're just talking too loud, and he's hearing them talk about it, right? And he, he knows what they're talking about. And he says, guys, do you want to ask me about this, about where I'm going, this thing that I've been saying? And then he adds this information. In just a short while, you guys are going to mourn. You're going to mourn, and you're going to be filled with sorrow. But in a short, and the world's going to rejoice, but in a short while, you will you will rejoice. Now, notice he, he doesn't really answer their question. Did you notice that? He doesn't really get any clearer, in my estimation anyway. He, he basically just says, I, I tell you soon that you're going to weep and, and you're going to be sorrowful. Now, when death of someone you love brings, it, it, bring, it always brings sorrow to your heart, the death of someone you love. But when the death of someone you love happens by them being ripped away from you, in in an untimely way, and in a brutal fashion, it brings sorrow upon sorrow. And at nine o'clock the next morning, I mean, it's it's, it's dark. It's probably before midnight. At nine o'clock the next morning, they're going to take this man, Jesus, who is their friend, and they are going to strip him, and then they're going to take and they're going to nail him to a piece of wood and then they're going to hang him and he is going to die one of the most excruciating deaths that a man can die uh, and they are going to watch it happen. And uh, they don't know it's going to happen even though Jesus has been telling them he's, they, they, we're looking back. We've got twenty twenty eyesight because we're looking back. They're not looking back. They're in the past. It hasn't happened yet. They don't know what's about to happen in the way it's about to happen. But when it happens, their hopes are gonna die. Their their grief is gonna be tangible and it's gonna be painful and it's gonna be tearful and it's gonna be agonizing and it's gonna be piercing and it's gonna be sharp and it's going to rip their hearts to pieces. And Jesus says, and as you mourn, the world's going to be really happy about what's happening. They're going to rejoice. They're going to have the, the exact opposite emotional response than you're going to have. And he says, but then your sorrow will turn to joy. And, and here's what Jesus means by that. It's, it's really, really clear. Their sorrow will turn to joy when Jesus walks out of the grave and his, his life, which is gone is restored to him, and he is alive again. And he says, your, your joy will be at that point. You know, I've, I uh, this doc's this probably going to have some references to Shep in it, but so I can remember when, you know, I'd, I'd go to see Shep in the funeral home, and I would pray that God would raise him from the dead. I mean, I, I guess every dad does that or whatever, not really believing that God was going to answer that prayer, but still praying it nonetheless. And And I just can't imagine, I I would think about this. I I just can't imagine what would have flooded my soul if all of a sudden life had flown back into my, had had come back to my son. So all of a sudden I, I, I felt him begin to breathe or I felt, I saw his eyes open and life was back. And I can't even fathom the joy, but that's the joy that those men would have experienced when they actually understood and believed that Jesus came back to life again. Now verse 21, when a woman is in labor, Jesus gives them this illustration. He says, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away uh, your joy from you. Jesus gives this every woman experience as a way of illustration. And he says, when a woman has a baby, it's painful. It's super painful, right? Right, women? And, uh... (laughs) Maybe a lady should come talk this part through, okay? But I'm pretty sure when Caleb was born, I thought, well, I'm great. I'm I'm glad I got one child because Ann will never do this again. Uh, But but alas, she did it five more times. Why did she do it five more times? Because you ladies and we men, we watch it. We can, like y'all, like so many have said, I can only imagine. We can only imagine, right? We can only imagine what it's like for, for a woman to experience that, but it's painful, but it's amazing, isn't it? Just as soon as it's over, it's like somehow you don't remember that, and the joy of the little one, I'm not talking from experience, but this is what I'm told, the joy of the little one washes away all of that sorrow and that hurt and that pain, and you do it again, and that's what Jesus says is going to happen here, He says, it's going to be like childbirth for you guys. The pain is going to be excruciating. But then when I see you again, the joy will flood your souls. And it's going to flood your souls. And I love this part. And no one will take away your joy from you. No one will take away your joy. It's going to be yours forever. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Verse 23, in that day, you will not ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the father in my name, he will give to you until now you've asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Now in that day, in what day? He's talking about the day of his resurrection. He's talking about after, post-resurrection. After I have accomplished what I came here, that is to die for you and rise again. After I have done that and I live forevermore, on the other side of resurrection, you will ask for things in my name. You've not asked for in my name, but you will ask for in my name. And God's going to respond to that. And he's going to do so that your joy may be me complete. And uh, Jesus continues, verse 25. I have have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day, you will ask in my name, and I am not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, and you have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Man, again, he's reiterating some of the things he's already said. But Jesus promises them there's a time when He's not going to speak with parables or figures of speech. He's plainly going to tell them about God so that it's crystal clear. Now, I'm just going to speculate as to when I think that He fulfilled that promise. I think it was post-resurrection. I think it's after the resurrection. And the reason, the the verse that I would point to would be in Luke, where he meets with his disciples. And you remember this he says, He opened their minds to understand the scripture. And I think that it's in that moment that Jesus speaks, not with parables, not with figures of speech, but he, he clearly. And specifically and concisely and without any kind of whatever, he explains God's plan from beginning to end so that they could write the, the New Testament, so they could write what was true, that God, what God had been doing from the beginning to the end. And, and one, one of the notes, some people mean believe that that means that God did this and they were blind and now all of a sudden they could understand. I don't think that. I personally think when it says he opened their minds to the Scripture, I think it means he sat down with the Old Testament and he explained the Old Testament to them so that their minds were open to understand it. That's what I think he did. And Jesus tells them, in the future, they will ask God for things, you will ask God for things, uh, excuse me, now they ask things of God directly, but, but he says, in the future, you're going to ask for things of the Father in my name. And he gives two reasons for that. He says, because the Father loves the Son's lovers. In other words, the Father loves everyone who loves the Son. In fact, I think the people love the Son because they love the Father first. But he also says, but, but he loves you because the Son's followers have faith in the Son. In other words, because the Son's followers have believed that Jesus came from God, the Father loves them, he says. I came into the world from God and I'm leaving the world returning to God. There he says it again. Now remember what Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, going back in John. He says, No one has ascended into, the he- into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. To the Pharisees in chapter 8, he said, Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And they said what's he going to kill himself? Is that why he's saying we we can't follow him? But he continues, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. In other words, I'm returning back to my father. And that's what he says over and over and over again. Jesus is from heaven, not from earth like us. And he is preparing for his return back to God. Verse 29, the disciples said, look, Now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Now I think that is a strange, a strange response. You know why? Because I think Jesus has just been just as cryptic as always. Does anybody see where he's not still speaking in figurative language and not really? I mean, he's not clearly saying what he's saying. We have to interpret it, which is very easy to do. But he's still speaking figuratively. But they are like, wow, now you're not speaking figuratively. We We believe you came from God. We believe you. We believe you. But verse 30, I think, is the key because it says, now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. Here's what I think that means. I I, I don't think Jesus could hear them. I think when he says, you want to know about me leaving? I don't think he could hear them. I think they knew that too. And so when Jesus brings up, just like he did on numerous occasions, he brings up what they're actually discussing in that moment. They are impacted by that they're having this private discussion and Jesus knows what they're discussing. And he said, and they say, wow, we believe you. And, uh, we believe you now because you know, you're not speaking figuratively anymore. I think what they mean is we believe you now because you knew what we were talking about. Verse 31, Jesus is irritated. Jesus responded to them. Do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So I think Jesus' response to them is like this. Really? You really believe me now? Let me tell you something. In just a few hours, every single one of you will abandon me. You'll all leave me, Uh, but I'm not alone, not alone because my father is not going to abandon me. My father is not going to leave me and uh, I'll not be alone. So that's, that's pretty cool, isn't it? And then, and then he says to them, I've told you all this ahead of time because I want you to have peace. And then I'm also telling you this in the world, you're going to suffer, but be courageous, be courageous because I have overcome the world. So let me go back. And let me take those 16 to 33 verses, chapter 16 to 16 to 33, and I want to distill it down to one concise contextual statement of what Jesus just said. Here it is. Jesus said, He's about to leave them by death, but he would return to them very soon in His resurrection, And his resurrection was going to change everything. In essence, that's what He just said to them. I'm distilling it down. I'm about to die. And they're going to bury me and you're not going to have me, but then I'm going to rise again. And when I do, my resurrection is going to change everything for you. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we call the the great resurrection passage, the apostle Paul said, uh, if Jesus has not been risen from the dead, if he's not alive again after he was dead, we of all people are most to be pitied, he said. We've wasted our lives. If Jesus didn't rise, we don't live again either, so we might as well eat, drink, and be merry because this is all there is. So the resurrection is absolutely, um, it is so central to who we are as followers of Jesus. And it needs to be kept in front of us, not just one time of year. In fact, They say that the reason we're meeting on on Sunday and not the Sabbath is because Sunday was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, right? The first day of the week. So the, the thought is that the early church wanted the resurrection of Jesus to be so central to who they were. And it was. Just think of Paul's teaching. It was always about the resurrection from the dead. So it's so central uh, they, we started meeting on Sunday, and the reason that we don't meet on the Sabbath is because the, the, the one day we choose is because we want to remember that Jesus rose from the dead. So what I'd like to do is go back through the text really quickly, and I'd like to show you four, four things, if you would, four, four ways the resurrection impacts, impacts our life specifically, and it's mentioned in the text, okay? So here we go. Here's the first one. Because Jesus is risen, I can choose joy even when it's really sorrowful. I can choose joy even when all around me, I am weighed down with grief and sorrow. And, uh, and these 11 men, I mean, their hearts are about to be uh, devastated. And Jesus says to them, but because of my resurrection, you're going to have a joy that will never, ever be dislodged. You're going to have joy that can never, ever be taken from you. So when the world would later crucify Andrew and Peter and boil Thomas alive in oil and cut James's head off and burn Matthias alive, they could keep joy in the midst of that because Christ was risen from the dead, and he was back alive again. And Jesus had promised them that because he lived again, they too would live again. So I want to say to every one of us in this room, I want to say to you, because Christ is risen, I don't care what you're suffering. You can choose joy in the midst of that. Now, this past week, if, if, you're, if you're on social media, you probably never would have heard of this brother, but if you're on social media, you probably saw it, or maybe it's just my feed, I don't know, but a pastor by the name of Jared Wilson, who was 30 years old in Riverside, California, um, he openly fought depression his whole life. He was a tremendous advocate for, uh, for folks who are battling depression and mental illness. On Monday night of this past week, he took his life in suicide. So... What I'm gonna say now, I want to acknowledge that there are physical things that lead us to mental illness and to depression and things that we cannot just choose our way out of that. So I, I want to acknowledge that, okay? But having said that, for most of us, that we're, we're, we're not having to battle the, ballad, uh, the battle that Jared bought, uh, fought, right? So for most of us, what I'm going to say, this is really true for us. And that is that in the midst of sorrow in our lives, I can actually choose joy and I can walk in joy and I don't have to let sorrow reign in my life. I think that's what Jesus is telling them. You're, you're going to be so mournful, but then when the resurrection comes, you're going to have a joy that can never, ever, ever be taken from you. And, and, I, and I think he's telling us, choose joy. God, God has something so wonderful for us. Things of the world, it's unknown to us, but envisioned by us, right? But, but we have so much promised for us in the future, a world of selflessness, of no sorrow, of no suffering, of goodness, of joy, where Jesus is our king, and the government of the world rests on his shoulders, and he's the prince of peace. And there'll be life and adventure. There'll be no more Dorians to destroy the Bahamas, and no more tornadoes to kill little children in a school. There'll be no more of that, but there will there will, be, there will be this wonder for us. And, and, and I think Jesus is saying, after the resurrection, you're going to have a joy that in the midst of anything, it just you, you can choose it. You can walk in it. You can, you, can, you can be there. So when you're down and feeling sad or maybe dispirited, turn your thoughts to the truth that Jesus conquered death. Remember, remember that he was murdered, but God gave him his life back so that you and I would know that he's going to give us our life back as well. And your sadness and sorrow may last for a season, a moment, but it's going to open up into this this marvelous world. And with that truth, you can choose joy. I remember, I've told you this story before, maybe not in this context, but years and years ago, I, I took up scuba diving again. And uh, I hadn't been in a long time, and my friend Ronnie Atkins had taken it back up, and I've told you this story a lot, I'm sorry. But anyway, since so my first dive, I'm really, really scared. I'm really nervous. I, I, he's really confident, I'm not. We're going down the anchor rope out at the, che- at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay where there's a tower. Some of you probably fished on it. And we're going down, and we're going down the anchor rope, and you can see about this far. And he's in front of me, and I'm in front of him, and he's going like this. And I'm going, yeah, and I'm lying. I'm going like this. Uh, Because I'm telling you, inside, I'm scared to death. But we got down to 15 feet. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's like the bottom of the Chesapeake opened up into this crystal clear pool. And I could see, I don't know how many feet I could see, 100 feet. I could see the massive legs to the tower. I could see things on the floor. And I'm still 20 feet, 30 feet off the bottom, but I can see everything. See, I think the resurrection of Jesus lets us look look through the murky stuff of this life and see all that God has promised for us in the future. And we can choose joy in the midst of that murky stuff because we know 15 feet down, if you would. I mean, the next time I went, I I wasn't worried at all, right? Because I knew what was coming. Let's move on. Here's the second thing. Because Jesus is risen, we can boldly pray and petition the Father. In that day, in what day? In the day of the resurrection, he says, in that day, you will have access to my Father, and you can ask things in my name. Let me say again, I've said this often. Dick, Dick mentioned it, that I said it often last week. But God is not our lackey to do our bidding He's not, he's not like the genie in the bottle for us. He's not, he's not my servant, right? Obviously, the will of God plays a part in everything that we ask, and he, he retains the right to delay or veto our request altogether. I mean, just because I ask him, I, you know, it has to be according to his will and the things that he desires. But Jesus' point is that after his death and resurrection, we have this basis to enter into his presence on the merit of Jesus himself. And so, and so the, the author of the book of Hebrews would write this, one of my favorite exhortations. This is what he says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses One who, in other words, knows our humanity, but one who has been tempted in every way as we, but yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of our need. Let us draw near, he says, with boldness into the presence of God. And though that text may not be specifically just referring to prayer, I think it could be talking about let us just come before God boldly through Jesus to, to be his, right, to say, Lord, I want to be yours. But honestly, it includes, it includes prayer to boldly come before him because Jesus has gone through death and he's come on the other side. He lives. Because of that, we have this basis from which we can pray and talk to God and we can boldly come before him and, and we come in Jesus' name. And so what do we do? We, we tack on to the end of our prayers. What do we tack on to the end of our prayers, everyone? In Jesus name. Right. And and let's be honest. Most of the time, that's the that's the add on at the end of the prayer. And we're not really remembering what that's supposed to mean. But what that's supposed to mean is exactly what Jesus is saying to them here. Now, when you pray, come on my merits, come on what I've done, come. I'm the meritorious one. Come through me, not you. Come through me. So here's a, here's a corny illustration or a silly illustration, but, but I'm going to give it anyway. Maybe it'll help. So this past couple of weeks ago, I don't know how long it was, I went to Home Depot to pay for a fence for, for our church to put around the children's playground out here. And, uh, and Chris, shod, was going to pick it up. And, uh, but see, Chris didn't pay for it. Chris didn't, you know, Chris was just the beneficiary of them giving him the fence because it had been paid for in someone else's name. I know it's a silly illustration, but that is sort of what Jesus has done for us. He's gone through the veil of death, died on, died, and then risen back to life. And so because of that, we have now access into the presence of God and we shall live with God forever and we shall have eternal life with God. And we come not on our own merit, but on the, on the merit of of, of Jesus, the merit of Jesus. So here's what I want to ask you to do this week in a way of application is when you pray, why not change the words just so, just so you're just remembering? Why not end your prayers like, Father, I pray through the accomplishments of Jesus' death and resurrection or something like this, Father, I pray because Jesus sacrificed his life for me to give me access into your new kingdom. It doesn't have to be those words. Phrase it however way you want. But when you pray, why not remember that this boldness that you have to come and talk to God like this, I mean, it's because Jesus is the meritorious one. Pray, pray in his merit. Number three, because Jesus' resurrection, we can have peace in the midst of turmoil. Jesus said, I've told you all about my death and resurrection. He says, so that you can have peace. And the resurrection of Jesus is the reason for our peace. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I can have peace because Jesus conquered death, lived again. I too will conquer death and live again. So so Jesus said, my resurrection is foundational for your peace. So I want you to have peace in life. Okay, uh, I want you to have peace in life. Now, Jesus doesn't mean peace as in the opposite of turmoil. Everybody agree, right? Anybody's life turmoil-free? How about it, George? So our, our, our lives are not turmoil-free, and you may be going through a turmoil-free time right this moment, but I guarantee you it will not last and you will have turmoil. Jesus isn't saying that you're going to have peace as in the opposite of turmoil. What he's saying is that in the middle of turmoil, you can have peace, serenity, security, rest in your inner being. So here's an illustration. Catherine Marshall, she was that nonfiction fiction Christian writer, but uh, here's something she wrote, and I quote. A king once offered a prize to the artist who could paint the best picture of peace. Many tried, but there were two that the king really liked. One was a calm lake. It was a perfect mirror for the peaceful, towering mountains all around it. Overhead was blue sky with fluffy white clouds. The other picture had mountains too, but they were rugged and bare. Above them was an angry sky from which fell rain and lightning. Down the sides of the mountain tumbled a waterfowl. This was not peaceful at all. But when the king looked closely at the picture, he saw behind the waterfall a tiny bush growing in the crack of the rock. And in the bush, a mother bird had built her nest. And there, in spite of the rush of the angry water and the skies above, she sat on her nest in perfect peace. Which picture do you think won the prize? The king chose the second picture. Why? Because, explain the king, peace does not mean to be in peace where there is no noise, trouble, or hard work. Peace means to be in the middle of all these things and still be calm in your heart. And that's what the resurrection does for us. That no matter what storm of life comes, you can have peace in your heart. And listen, it's a peace that you don't understand. It's a peace that other people don't understand. Now before I move to this last thing, I want to add this about I want to add this about peace. The same thing I said about joy and suffering, and that is that I think I have to choose peace and turmoil. I think I have to choose peace in the midst of the storm. In Isaiah 26, verse 3, Isaiah challenged the Israelite people. He said, you keep him, speaking about God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So you want to choose peace? You want to have peace? Keep your mind stayed on Jesus, on his resurrection, on his promised return, on the promised kingdom that he has for us. So the key to choosing peace is to choose and to keep my mind focused on Jesus and to trust him. What do I have to trust him with? What do I trust him with? <laughs> George says everything. Yeah, everything. But specifically, I trust that he loves me in the midst of that storm. I trust his promise, Dickie, his promise that he's going to be with me, not leave me. The promise that, that death nor life, nothing can separate me from my future with him and his love for me. Nothing. And so I trust in those things. When the emotional storm of Shep's death raged all around me, without my consent, by the way, my heart had uh, an unexplainable peace. Faith was at the helm of our lives. I chose to trust Jesus loved me and loves me still. And, and that his promise of a future beyond death is certain. And I chose faith and faith brought peace. Finally, because Jesus died and then returned back to life, I can be courageous in the face of fear. Be courageous, I have conquered the world, Jesus said. That's the last, last line of chapter 16. I may be wrong here, and Jesus may be alluding to the fact that in in just another day, he would actually die and not have sinned. Because remember, we have a high priest who's gone before us, who's like us in every way and knows our weaknesses, but yet without sin. He may be saying, I've conquered the world. I've not sinned. You know, and tomorrow, that's going to be a reality, right? Right. But, and and I'm I'm sure he's probably alluding to that in some way, but I think his primary thing is, when he says, I've overcome the world, I think he's talking about his promised resurrection over death. That's what I think. I think he's saying that in three days, I'm going to conquer what everyone in the world is so afraid of, and that is dying. And that is, they're, they're losing their life. And and not having life. And he says, Now you can be filled with courage because I have, overcome, I have overcome the world. Now, you don't get courage from looking within. You don't get courage from being angry. You know, sometimes we think, if I just get angry, then, then angry kind of motivates me. And we call that courage. That's not what courage is. Courage isn't letting your anger control you. You know, courage... What is courage? So here's what courage is. Courage is isn't the opposite of fear. It's acting the way you should, even in the midst of fear. Okay? And in Roosevelt, we all know he said it best, right? The only thing we have to fear is... Why? Why? Because fear keeps us from doing what we're supposed to be doing, what we should be doing, right? So, now notice that Jesus doesn't say... He says, be courageous, you know, sometimes we think courage is the absence of fear. It's not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to do what I'm supposed to do, what's right, even when I'm deadly afraid. And, and, I, and I don't want to because I'm scared to death. I do the right thing. And so Jesus is saying, because I have overcome the world. And again, maybe he just means sin. Maybe he means death. I think he means death. He says, you don't have to be afraid of anything because eternal, I mean, you don't, you can be courageous in the midst of fear because what awaits you is eternal life. The resurrection gives us courage to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. Because at the end of the day, eternal life is ours and and, and paradise with God is ours. You know, and I, I used to be, he used to be somewhat apprehensive about talking about paradise to come because it's sort of like pie in the sky, right? I'm telling you what, I'm looking forward to paradise. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of paradise. I'm, not, I'm looking forward to paradise. I'm looking forward to the day when God establishes his kingdom on the earth and we're all resurrected together, all the loved ones of the past, all who are living at the time of his return, and we're all together in his kingdom. I'm looking forward to that day. And, that, and that's what he's saying here. We don't have to fear anything now because what is, I've overcome the world. I, I, you win in the end because of me. You win. It gives us courage to speak the truth even when others don't appreciate it or like us, and especially in this age of unbelief. You know, it, it helps us. It gives us courage to do right, to speak positively, to seek unity, to love those who disagree with us, to seek to, seek to help those who malign us. To be unsurprised and not angered when society rejects Jesus and doesn't line up with the laws of those of us who follow Christ or, or uh, it, you know, uh, it, it seeks to hurt us and not bless us. We can still choose to bless them. We don't have to be in like mind. Even when we might be afraid of the people who are against us. We can still do all of that. The resurrection of Jesus accomplishes us for us all, all our own resurrection into eternal life, and gives us courage because there's nothing else that matters at the end of the day. I mean, if you can believe that, can you believe that? Can you believe that at the end of the day, nothing else matters because post-mortem, there is coming in the future a kingdom where Jesus reigns, and we're in it. Can you believe that? I mean, I know it's hard to believe, right? I know it's hard to believe. The problem with that is I have to walk by faith. Can you trust Jesus? Can you trust the 11 men that he's talking to? Because you know why we believe? We believe because of the 11 men that he's talking to in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. We believe because of them. I mean, we're believing their story. They wrote it down. They said what we've touched, what we've felt, what we've seen, what we've heard, we pass it on to you. So we believe because then can you do that to the point where you're willing to choose, you're willing to choose courage, even when you're deadly afraid because it might mean your life? That's the question. But if you do, if you believe that Jesus conquered death and you can have the courage to face anything, you won't need to run and hide because Jesus has overcome death. Uh, the world. So this morning, I'm, I'm finished. So this morning, um, through the power of the helper who lives within us, I want to encourage you to do these four things again. Choose joy. Choose joy in your suffering because Jesus has risen. Pray with confidence on the merits of Jesus' death and resurrection. Choose peace in the middle of your storm. And be courageous in the face of fear because Jesus defeated death. Now this morning, I don't know how it happened, but it happened. So I want to, I want to, I want to read you something. So this morning I, on my, on my Facebook page, when I looked at it, there was, oh my goodness, it's not there. Oh, it's in here. I'm sorry. Uh, There was a memory from a number of years ago that shows up. You know how those things show up on your Facebook from a number of years ago? And it was a letter that I wrote to a young man that I discipled years ago and who's still following Jesus to this day, so that's kind of exciting. But, uh, but this, is, this is what I wrote the brother. He, I said, Darren, this gift is a little late for Christmas, but uh, this thought is still the same. I just want you to know that you have been a tremendous encouragement to me. I'll be praying for you during 1985 that you will continue to grow in spirit and in love for the Lord Jesus. It will not always be easy walking with Jesus, but from personal experience, the joy and the peace that Jesus gives us makes it worthwhile. Take care, work hard, get involved with Crusade and with a good local church, God bless you. I don't know, that, those words, you know, it will not always be easy walking with Jesus, but from personal experience, the joy and the peace that he gives are worthwhile. And I can say that with a new dimension today and say that was a new dimension. The joy, the peace, the courage, the confidence to pray, they all come because Jesus is risen from the dead. Let's bow our heads. Before I close the service and, and we all go home and have lunch and enjoy the Sunday afternoon, I just want to ask, is there anyone here this morning who would be willing who who is who's feeling tugged by the Holy Spirit to put their trust in this Jesus who rose from the dead. Is there anyone here this morning who would be willing to say, Jimmy, that's me, man, my heart is being tugged. I want to put my trust and faith in Jesus. Anybody here this morning like that? Just raise your hand, just between you and me. Anybody? God, thanks for this morning together. And uh, Lord, even though we, you know, technology wasn't working exactly. Lord, it's been a good morning to be with you. And we hope that our worship has risen before you as something really pleasing to you, Lord, both the confidence of our heart, but then the expression of that confidence in song and prayer and and just all that we've done today. We pray that it's risen before you as, as just something really, really pleasing to you. We love you. Thank you, Jesus, for rising from the dead and giving with us in that resurrection joy, peace, courage. And confidence to come before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.